You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Paladin, the premier technology provider for multi-channel networks and digital media companies, including Maker Studios, Awesomeness TV, Studio 71, and more. The Paladin platform streamlines processes, increases efficiency, and grows revenue for media companies that represent more than 200,000 content creators and a collective 15 billion monthly views. Visit paladinsoftware.com to learn more or request a product demo. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Matthew Levin, co-founder and CEO of Donut Media. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Thanks for having me. Of course. Been wanting to do this for a long time. I want to start by jumping into your background. You studied film and television at Boston University before making your way to L.A., where you started your career as a project analyst for Originate. So for those who aren't familiar, what is Originate? What did you do there? Yeah. So Originate's a consultancy, tech consultancy mainly, although there's a big business consulting standpoint there. And, you know, I started there as pretty early and I guess project analyst is a good catch-all for doing a lot on the business side, doing a lot on the technical side, you know, and it was a great opportunity that led me ultimately to doing product work, but also exposed me to a lot of different aspects of startups and fundraising and all these different things and had a few success stories and, and quite a few failure stories out of it. But it was great because, you know, for most of it, we were doing some investing and some in-kind investing. So my first experience with startups and venture was on that side of the table, not the entrepreneurial side of the table. I think it's an experience that a lot of entrepreneurs should try and have is when you get pitched something 10 times a day, you become much more empathetic to what the scenario is like in the room when you're pitching. It yeah, you know, it works and what doesn't work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I put it that strongly, but at least you, you can relate to the fact that you're one of a bunch of people coming in their doors. It's really hard for them, I think, and, and it's something that we talked about a lot, it's hard to sift bullshit from non-bullshit, right? Like it's really complex to go meet somebody and within an hour decide if what they're saying is true. If it's not, what kind of person is this? If you have no context of this person and who they are, it's really hard to tell, are these claims true? Are they not? Especially if it's outside of your domain expertise. And a lot of VCs don't have a domain expertise and at Originate, we didn't. So, you know, you kind of are just trying to solve this puzzle and suss out this person. And there's all these complexities to kind of what you're looking for beyond, I think, what you would normally think about when you're walking into a pitch, which is how strong is my business and do I have any food in my teeth? <laughs> so were there any train wrecks, any horror stories, or, you know, what was the worst pitch you ever saw? I don't know if there's any one that stands out, which is probably a good thing. I also don't think I knew enough, you know, to really make that. I was sort of a fly on the wall for most of it, but definitely learned kind of the beats people would walk through, you know, and I think, I don't, I don't want to say that I'm a, a great pitcher or anything. I don't know if that's what people should be taking advice from me on, but I do, I did kind of see the difference between people who could come into a room and have a conversation and people who'd come in and present a slide deck and kind of pack it up and leave. And you saw a huge difference, I think, in success of the people who were able to engage and have a conversation, you know, and when I pitch now, I very rarely pull out our slides or use them. I think that you're sitting in our conference room now. There's not a TV in here. I'm not really interested in looking at slides as a manager or as hearing somebody, you know, somebody coming to pitch us on anything. I don't really want to see your slides. I'd rather talk to you. You can send me the slides before or after. I think it's a better use of time. We usually have plenty of whiteboards, right? I think that if you can show your thinking on a whiteboard in, in the moment, to me, that's a much stronger 
place to start rather than slides that you've taken 10 months crafting that I've already seen once when you emailed them to me. So you went from studying film to working in software development. How did you make that leap? Uh, so there's a few years intervening of working in film, you know, which started during college and brought me out to Los Angeles, the promised land for film production. It was a great experience. Working in film is awesome. It's long hours. You know, it, it trains you, I think, in a certain type of just getting stuff done. It's why I love hiring people out of the film industry, is I think a lot of people, whether it's even just a few years of PAing or being on set, there's this attitude of things are going to happen and you have to make them happen and we're shooting tomorrow. And so you're just not sleeping or you're going to run around, you know, four miles to the Home Depot to get the one thing that you still need. And so it has that training ground to it. The flip side for me is that it was not very creatively fulfilling. You know, I came out kind of excited about film and all the things and television and kind of what I went to school for and came out and found it was pretty boring. You know, I think Hollywood in particular is pretty safe. My friends, you know, who work in film don't like me saying it, but I look, I look at film as a dead medium and not dead and that no one's doing it, but people are still making new operas and people are still innovating in opera, but it's not where the most excitement is happening. And so I got very bored with film after a while and, you know, went to tech because tech was much more interesting. And then when the digital revolution started happening, right, when you had all these companies finally making their way to LA, it was like, oh, well, this is perfect. This is production, it's creative, it's new, it's exciting, it's innovative. It's all these things kind of wrapped into one. And I was very fortunate to have a skill set that was pretty immediately applicable. So you had this passion for film and the skill set you developed from working on set and production that lent itself to creativity in another medium. So how did you pitch that story or tell that story to originate in order to get a job? That's a good question. I think it happened more organically. You know, I think just working at Originate and working on tech, kind of going, hey, we could do this with this product or we could do this and, and kind of reading about product thinking and design thinking and all these things and the way people were applying creativity in different ways. I just kind of gravitated to it. You know, I wasn't a designer, but I think the idea of taking a product, listening to user feedback and agile and all the buzzwords and the methodologies that were getting more and more traction at the time, which I think are still great. But the idea that there's a methodology behind creativity and there's still this balance. And I think today a lot of companies and a lot of products haven't found this balance of listening to your consumer and understanding what, you know, the Steve Blank methodologies are and the building your product around your customers and also having a vision. You know, I think there's a balance between them and not, and every company falls somewhere on that spectrum, but for us kind of finding what is the role for creativity. And, and, you know, for me, I think where I landed on it was kind of the peaking problem of data is, is the cleanest way for me to think about what is the role of data versus creativity in kind of any endeavor. I want to come back to that. So I'm going to put a little bookmark on the idea of data in creative endeavors. But I also, maybe that actually segues into my next point, which is during your time at Originate, in fact, the first year you were there, you founded a company called Balloon which was an online distribution platform for independent comics. So I know you're a longtime comic fan, comic nerd. What uh, inspired you to start that business? Yeah, you know, me and, and Tommy, who's one of the engineers there at the time, both uh, bonded over being comic nerds, shared passion. And there was a sort of EIR program at Originate where you had some time to start companies on the side. And we said, let's solve a problem that doesn't need to be a billion dollar problem. We don't need to go raise a bunch of money and turn this thing into a unicorn, but let's do something that we think would be interesting and partially just start a company and see what that's like. 
Uh, so we built this platform, or Tommy built it, and I ran the product on it that allowed publishers to self-publish their comic and reach their audience. And it was really interesting because it was at the time there, there were digital solutions for big comics kind of coming online, very little for independents. So there was a sort of thing that felt good for us to be able to give that option for free to digital publishers, you know, with the intention of running ads and stuff. Long story short, it never went anywhere. You know, we got some investment, we got some stuff and got it off the ground. I think what the takeaway from that, though, was super interesting to me was kind of how you generate buzz and build a brand and build an audience. And I think there's this huge delta that was really summed up is that there was really almost no audience for independent comic books. There was very few people who would take a risk sight unseen and purchase or even spend the time reading a free comic book. Now, if you're the biggest comic book in the world, you can actually charge a lot. And it's sort of this non-linear function in terms of how buzz and publicity and heat around a property relate to what someone's willing to pay or the time someone's willing to spend or the depth someone's willing to go to learn about something. And so it was hugely enlightening in terms of just as we studied and buying Google traffic and advertising and trying to find the audience for this is how do people really relate to different forms of media? And, you know, I can't say it was the most formative thing in what's brought us, you know, here today, but certainly influenced my thinking at that point. And then after three years of development at Originate, you joined Awesomeness TV as head of products. What were you tasked to build at Awesomeness? At the time, you know, it evolved a lot. At the time we started, it was not the earliest days of MCNs, but still pretty early. And we were running, you know, the biggest network, I think, of all the MCNs, to my knowledge. You probably know better than I do. But there were not a lot of tools around that. You know, we had a couple APIs. We had a couple things that would help us look at the data. YouTube, you know, and that was new from YouTube. So it was a lot of plumbing to kind of keep an eye on things and understand everything. And there was a lot that, you know, the guys there before I came on had built using BigQuery and some other tools from Google and just a lot of big flat files. And we're trying to make those things a little smarter, make processes more automated. You know, over time that shifted into building more tools for our creators and things that would hopefully help them be more successful, help them feel they were getting a value out of being a part of the network. Uh, and then towards the end, it became much more data focused. And it was much more looking at kind of, and that's my passion, right? Is like looking at the data for the content we're putting out, for the content our network's putting out. What trends can we find in the data that can inform our creativity? And I think it was mostly that last part and kind of the things that I was seeing doing that that have most strongly informed how we kind of started Donut Media. So what did you discover when looking at the data around content creation and audience consumption habits? We discovered it's very different, right? There's, there's not, at least the amount of data we had, which was arguably pretty large. I mean, it's not a YouTube-sized data set, but we had all the creators and we had a lot of YouTube public data, is that it really varies by audience, by audience type, by the vertical you're in, and that awesomeness had gotten really good at doing something for one vertical and had created some patterns. And, you know, I think it was at one point the beginning of the genesis of this idea of verticals, right? And that's not a new idea, but the idea that each vertical has sort of consumption patterns that vary very much from how other verticals, gaming videos are consumed completely differently. I think it was the first sort of thing we noticed is that gaming videos are consumed very differently from how fashion and beauty videos are consumed are consumed differently than how scripted content or sort of series character-based content is consumed. 
you know, we kind of look at digital as this one thing, as this one mass, at least at the time, it was like YouTube, it's just got to make YouTube videos. And really, there's so many subcategories in that, that can't be grouped together, that behave differently, that spread differently, that act differently. And I think now, as we've seen more of a proliferation of platforms, we're getting more people thinking that way and customizing their strategies around different platforms. And I think it's smart. We'll continue to see people customizing their strategies around different types of content going, yeah, clickbaity thumbnails and all the, the standard rules apply for certain types of content. You know, cars are a great example is that, you know, the YouTube rule book says, you know, direct eye contact, facial expression, bright colors, big text. With cars, if you put a picture of a cool car and a thumbnail for a car, it performs pretty well. You know, and I think there, be, there became this thing to us where we're going, oh, well, we can actually rewrite our own rules. And we have to write our own rules for what is all, how does all this apply to our vertical? And I think that's the most exciting thing about being in a verticalized business. And what's different from the days where it was all sort of homogenous is that we're actually solving problems that are specific to our industry. We're not just taking the solutions that work somewhere else and applying them to a new vertical. We actually have a completely different problem set. And it's one of the things that drew me to automotive is that it's a very unique problem set that's unlike, and maybe everyone, maybe taste may feel the same way about food. But for us, it's, it was unlike anything else we'd kind of seen at the time at Awesomeness for me or, you know, the rest of the team had really seen. So we're solving different and interesting problem. So it sounds like this is the one idea that continually inspired you and ultimately led you to launch Dona Media in June 2015, which if people haven't guessed by now is an automotive digital uh, first publisher. So tell us about why you wanted to build a media company and why you were so passionate about automotive. I think the historical context of all of this is, is important. You kind of see a couple times throughout history when Brands are built, right? And it's always the same pattern. As a new technology emerges, somebody gets really good at creating content on that platform, on that new technology that before we called them platforms. And they create brands that last uh, for a very long time. I mean, this goes back to newspaper publishing. Radio. Happened again in radio. Happened in television. Happened in cable television. You know, you had glossy magazines in there. You had blogging. And we're at one of those moments, right? And I do believe that just like... You know, the New York Times took advantage of that. And in our vertical, the motor trends and the car and drivers took advantage of glossy photo print publishing. It's going to happen again in this new media, media 3.0, whatever buzzword you're going to call, whatever it is we're doing now, social videos, when we like to a certain degree, it's going to happen again. And it's an opportunity to build new brands and almost without fail in all of these eras, the legacy brands, the people who mastered the last medium don't master the new one. So it's a huge opportunity, right, on a historical scale. Say this is a moment in history that comes around every 20 or so years to build a new brand that will last for a really long time. And couple that with the sort of shift in value back towards content, which I think we, we tilted away from in kind of the earlier tech revolution. Now we're tilting back towards the value of content like, well, what an awesome time to start a media company. It's almost, it's almost too good not to, in a way. And I look back, people always say, oh, man, if I had been in Silicon Valley in the 80s, I would have been the next Steve Jobs or whatever. Well, here in L.A., it seems like that kind of opportunity. There's literally that much opportunity. There's so many companies that can be started in this space, in the media space. You know, investment is still catching up to that. And there's, you know, infrastructure is still catching up to that. It's caught up somewhat. But 
it's a really special moment right now. And, you know, it is also very geographically based in Los Angeles. So I feel we're kind of living in a golden era that will be will be looked back upon. I completely agree. LA is in a bit of a renaissance. Culturally, I think what we're seeing from the infrastructure patterns that you mentioned, but also uh, from this collision of technology and what's happening in the Valley moving down South, but also traditional entertainment in Hollywood. And I love the historical perspective you bring to it because I think much the same way that when you have a new medium like radio in the 20s or television in the 60s, that it starts as general programming, right? You have news, maybe a multi-purpose entertainment, but then that drills down into verticals, which we've already seen play out in digital video, right? If you look at the evolution of MCNs, just as one indicator, where you had very broad focused networks like an Austin's TV, a Maker Studios, or a full screen that ultimately needed to build a vertical strategy internally or realize that their audience had already kind of natively organized around a vertical. And then you drill down even further into super fan communities. So in the case of car enthusiasts, you don't just have everyone who loves automotive, but you have people who are really passionate about street racing or off-roading or maybe even about specifically Mustangs, right? Whatever it is. One of the other things that appealed to me of the things that you said is traditional media or the, the folks that master the previous generation always struggle to bridge the gap and tackle the subsequent generation. So as you're building that, I guess it's the classic innovator's dilemma. How do you think about what's coming next? And you're not just building for today, but what's coming for tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, we kind of take this thing, and I've stolen this from people much smarter than me, is we have to put ourselves out of business before someone else does, right? Like, I think that Awesomeness did this really well. And this is not speaking as an employee of Awesomeness, but just as an observer, when they saw the shift and the power going back to publishers and the, the owners of the IP and the people who had the strongest relationship to the content being created and the branded content, native advertising revolution, they were getting into that business right away and not waiting to get caught with an asset that didn't have as much value, right? And I think that was really smart. And I think it, in the same way with digital, it moves so quickly. If you're not in the business of getting to the next thing first, you're in the business of going out of business, right? Like there's really no way you can keep up. And even today, look, we're very focused on Facebook. Facebook video has been huge. I love it. It's an amazing platform. It's been great for building our brand. We are not a Facebook-focused video publisher. We are focused on getting on whatever platform is really working, figuring it out, gathering the data, and making excellent content on that platform, and then figuring out what's next. Because the only thing that seems consistently true in this industry is that it's going to shift, it's going to change. And you know, the folks like the BuzzFeeds and the Vices who have survived shifts from one medium to another are taking a much broader, higher level view of the role of a media company. You know, I think that's, that's where the traditional companies fall down. Right? If you're a TV programmer and you're good at television, you have a hard time shifting to going, oh, digital, it's like TV. Because it's not. It's, it, it's, you know, I need a better metaphor. We talk kind of about, you know, the sculptor and the butcher. And some of their tools may look similar, but the products they're making are very different. And I think it's the same with, hey, anybody who's using a camera, using video, using lights is making the same product. And there's similarities and there's massive differences in the product that we're creating. So how do you build a brand where you're able to migrate that audience across platforms? It's what aspects accrete to the brand, right? What are the values that people associate seeing your brand? I think sort of brand building in this space cross-platform is very new. But when you look at the folks who are good at it, let's take BuzzFeed. I know what I'm getting from BuzzFeed. I know any platform I go on, there's 
this pop culture, contemporary, somewhat disposable. I mean, this is sort of pre-BuzzFeed news and the hard-hitting side of BuzzFeed, but traditionally I've kind of known what I was going to get. And they carried that voice and content very strongly from one platform to the next. That allowed them to do a lot of interesting stuff because they could kind of apply that in different ways. You know, as we're building our brand, it's about what is the voice of Donut Media? What is it that we have to say? What is the kind of content we're known for and that we can do? And how does that translate from one platform to another? And what do people want out of you? And what do people want out of each platform that's different, right? We've learned, and it's very visceral in the comment section, that the folks on YouTube don't want the same things as, as the folks on Facebook do. But there's a donut that serves both those audiences that still fits our core values and our core things that make us who we are. And there's a number of different things that those are, but the point is, is that they can be consistent, but also need to be flexible enough to change. So it's sort of knowing where to hold firm and knowing where to flex and saying, okay, we're not just short form guys, or we're not just the Snapchat brand where the brand that means something deeper. And I think, look, if you're building a brand that's going to last, it has to be deeper than we make 90-second videos that have lists in them or whatever. You know, I think it has to be about values and voice and quality and these things that are a little bit more intangible. So outside of YouTube and Facebook, what are the platforms that you're keeping an eye on? Uh, Very active on Instagram and Instagram stories. I think that is going to be... You know, even looking at Instagram stories is a medium that's distinct from Snapchat stories, right? It's this weird thing in that they're, they look so similar and everybody talks about how similar they are. And it's much more interesting to me how they're different. There's a lot less intimacy when someone follows you on Instagram. It's very easy, cool, I can follow a bunch of people, I can follow a bunch of celebrities, I'll follow a bunch of brands. Snapchat is much more intimate. The context in which I'm snapping is a messaging context. I'm not there to consume content, I'm there to communicate. So how do you make content you know, and these are both vertical micro content type things, but on Instagram, I'm used to following a brand, following a story, seeing more professional produced content because I can upload things from my camera roll and I always have been able to. And I'm on Instagram consuming a lot of high quality content versus Snapchat where I'm used to -to one-to-one messaging, having more relationship-based communications. And so how do we look at those two things as different mediums? And, you know, not get distracted by the fact that on a technical specification sheet, they're the same medium because they're not. Those contexts are massively important in terms of how people are consuming. So looking ahead to a Snapchat IPO, what are your thoughts on the performance? I am not in a position to give anyone advice on <laughs> money outside of whether or not they should invest in donut media. I'm an expert on that. Look, I, I don't know. I think Snap has a super important role in people's lives. I think even at Awesomeness, we conduct a lot of focus groups and a lot of interviews. And the importance with that. What are you working for? ADP believes it's about more than what you do. It's about why you do it and the people you do it for. That's why we're designing a better way to work so you can achieve what you're working for. ADP, always designing for people. That Snapchat has to people from a communication perspective is massive. How does that translate to Snapchat becoming a media platform? People are doing most of their professional media consuming. I don't know. I can't answer that. That's a big corner to turn that I don't know that they've turned as of today. And that's a much more immediate thing for Instagram to solve. And I think it's reductive to look at those are the two poles of this because 
there's the interesting thing to me about Snapchat and when it started, what's always been interesting is people are making content for each other. And I've always thought about this from the MCN days and everything. There's sort of this sliding scale of content, right? And it used to be professionals produce content, everyone else consumed. And then it was professionals produce content. And if you're a YouTuber, you can produce content too. And you're semi-professional and you're in the mix. And now Snapchat, you know, when they launched a couple of years ago, it was anybody can produce content for their friends and distribute it in a way that they own. And so you kind of have this world where everyone is a content creator and people are communicating with each other by creating content. And then we'll go, okay, well, a text message is just a one-to-one tweet, right? And then you kind of look at this whole, the whole world kind of unravels into, hey, we're all creating and consuming content that's distributed on some level in some amount of volume. This has gotten really theoretical, but the idea being that there's a role that Snapchat is playing as not quite content for the public, but not quite private content that is meant to communicate on an intimate level that I don't know any other platform that is doing something that's quite the same thing. What's going to be curious is, or what I'm curious to see is how these people who've grown up with Snapchat, can they get that itch scratched somewhere else? Right, because posting stories and consuming stories is not the only thing happening on that platform. Arguably, the most interesting thing from an ad sales perspective, but there's a role that it has in people's lives that we'll see if they can get it somewhere else. Right? Do people need Facebook in their lives? Do people need Twitter? How long does it take people to migrate off platforms? Is something that we still are going to see. Is what it, what do platforms look like when they die? How does platform death happen? You know, I don't know if I'm. Vine's a good example. It's also a very unique example, but I think we're going to see a churn coming in platforms. And again, that's a good time to be in the media business because you're going to be working cross-platform. You're going to be able to operate differently on these different platforms. And so it's a unique problem to solve as it happens in the next couple of years. There was a lot there. Uh, I guess some of the things that stood out to me at the end was you know, your comments about Vine as being very unique. I think about MySpace in a similar context, but the environment in which MySpace rose to prominence and then fell was completely different, right? It was the biggest and for the most part, the only platform at the time, and then succeeded by Facebook, which I think realized perhaps had the benefit of MySpace's failure as hindsight was that they needed to collect information about their users and be a means of which people navigated the internet. Well, you get into this other question, right? I think it's your MySpace point is sort of the most prescient one is that we're kind of in a world where you had one platform or you had two platforms or you had a, a number of platforms that I could conceivably be on all of them and address all of them at a reasonable level. We're moving away from that. We're moving where, you know, today your identity might, your online identity is composed of the things you post to the platforms you're on. It's shifting and this has already started to, your identity is composed of which platforms you're actually using. Right. And I think we see this probably most tangibly with Tumblr, right? Tumblr users kind of have this homogenous community vibe. And, and obviously it's overgeneralizing by a long shot. But I think if you look at the makeup of a group, the one person in that group who uses Tumblr, you could make some generalizations about that person versus the person who uses Twitter might be more inclined towards news and current events. And the person that uses Facebook or the person who's heavy on YouTube and consuming a lot of YouTube content you're going, oh, wow, our identity is constructed based on which of these apps we have on our phone. Extend that out to when there's 20, 30, 40, 100, 1,000 viable different media platforms out there. What does that look like? What does being a content creator in that environment look like? What is the upper 
limit to how many of these different things can exist. And already, you know, being US centric, we're not talking about some of the biggest platforms in the world, you know, Donuts launching a WeChat. You know, we're, we're very focused on getting on WeChat and getting on Weibo and getting on these Chinese platforms because, look, there's a ton of people using them and they're consuming very differently. It's much heavier around text. It's not as much video yet. You know, there's going to be more platforms, especially as we look globally. There's already more platforms than I think people are acknowledging. And so I'm really excited about what it means to be a content creator when there's more platforms than people can possibly keep up with. That's fascinating. There's a lot there again, but uh, I really appreciate understanding the context in which you think about the operating environment for Donut. So I guess what I want to turn to now is understanding more of the, the business side. What is the hardest part for you about being an entrepreneur? Look, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'll start with that. I think when you, when you kind of go, you know, being an employee for a long time, right? And this is sort of compare and contrast, right? Being an employee from somewhere. The, you kind of trade one set of stresses and frustrations for another, but as an entrepreneur, you have so much more under your control. You know, I think it's, if you've ever been in an organization where there's a lot of politics and a lot of drama and, and all these things that kind of come with, with some, as entities grow bigger, you know, the day you put in your notice, you go, oh man, none of that mattered. All of that was a distraction from whatever the mission of that company was. And it became the tool by which things got done, whether it was bureaucracy or politics or whatever. And so when you leave somewhere, you, you leave all that behind. And starting a company, you don't really have to deal with that. But what you do have to deal with is things like the market, right? Oh, the market went up or down. And the, what does that do to the venture market? What does that do to the viability of our business? And what does this company selling for a terrible valuation mean for your company? And there's all these different things that are outside your control that impact your life in a different way. So I guess that there's different things that keep you up at night or different things that you're thinking about, but I'll take that trade off any day because I do feel that as an entrepreneur, I'm much more in control of my own life. You know, while there are things that will affect the outcome of that, sure. But I think for day to day, I get to deal with the things that I think make an impact for us and, you know, most importantly for our users and for the people watching our content being able to focus more on them than maybe some of the other things that come with, with being an employee somewhere. And I would hope that that sentiment shared by all the employees here at Donut, where we're a very friendly, low politics environment, but it's easy when you're less than 15 people. What are some of the things that are keeping up these days? I mean, I think it goes back to a lot of the stuff we're talking about, right? Like we're building thing, we're building something on someone else's platform. And it's something that keeps us on our toes is that things can change, right? Everything you know can be gone tomorrow. Everything, and we, we saw this more in the earlier days of YouTube with algorithm changes and whole businesses being built and then decimated because somebody, you know, somebody at YouTube made a change. What helps me get back to sleep when I'm thinking about that is that all of these platforms want to optimize for one thing, which is great content. They want their users to have a great experience. It's easy to forget kind of in the SEO age of growth hacking and everything else, that users want to have a good experience and the people running these platforms mostly want them to have a good experience and also click on some ads. But in the bucket of mostly want them to have a good experience, as content creators, that's reliable. We know that if you make great content and people interact with it in the right way, you're ticking some boxes and you, you don't need to focus so much on reverse engineering algorithms. You can go, well... This is the experience YouTube wants someone to have. This is the experience Facebook wants someone to have. If we can be the best at making content that people love to consume and interact with and comment on and share, 
we're going to be okay as it all shakes out. What does the future hold for Donut? There's a vision that I have of what a media company looks like in the future. We're seeing it come into focus in a bunch of different ways. We're seeing a lot of different people pursuing the media company of the future. You know, I like looking at Donut. I look at a company like Headspace. I think Headspace is an awesome company and sometimes not acknowledged enough as one of the more important media companies operating today, operating here locally. They look very different from us, you know, beyond just size and funding and all those other things. But their, their business looks very different from our business. But when you look at both these businesses in their maturity, let's say, you know, in 2035, 2040, we probably look pretty similar despite being in different verticals. And I, I do feel that there's this destination where we're all heading of what it means to be creating media, to be building a brand of the future. We're all figuring it out at different rates and different times and different ways. We've started very much dependent on branded content. You know, that's, that's our bread and butter and building audiences on social platforms. Something like Headspace is focused on their own operated app. Customers are paying for content, but there's a universe where we're creating, where we're both doing both things. And we're also creating SVOD services, maybe, or, you know, direct sales, licensing, live events, talent integrations, agency work. I mean, there's this sort of full vision that's going to take us years and years and years to build. The fact that we get to do it in a vertical that we're excited about and that has a really great set of advertisers to work with gives us a lot of sort of unique challenges to solve along the way. And, you know, again, one of the things that's so cool about the LA community that you're mentioning is that we're all kind of figuring this out together. We're comparing notes because it's not competitive. It's like, hey, you're doing this for your vertical. I'm doing this for my vertical. We're all coming at it from different angles. What can we learn from each other? And how do we make the consumer's life better by figuring out how to make content better? So it sounds like your vision for the media company of the future is pretty much 360 with multiple revenue streams encompassing talent, owns our operated content, building original IP. Yeah, I think you can build a certain size business on just one of those, but ultimately you get enormous benefits from doing all of it, right? If you're, you know, let's take auto as a vertical, if we're the ones doing branded content, but someone else is doing the SVOD platform and someone else is doing direct sales and someone else is doing merchandising, well, it's just inefficient for the market. It's inefficient for all those four companies. They'd be stronger together. That is going to happen inevitably. Once you sort of go, oh man, these things would be stronger together, they tend to get stuck together. The question is, how do we create enough differentiation, enough innovation, and then not become homogenous and boring to the point where someone else can come in and get in? And that's really, look, pushing yourselves creatively and pushing yourselves to innovate constantly is the ongoing challenge of any business. And, you know, when we're describing this big, holistic, 360-degree behemoth, that challenge doesn't change. It's how do we keep innovating and keep exciting, keep creating great content, right? Because that all of those things come back to that. Speaking of which, you know, we highlighted the fact that it was something that's here today, maybe gone tomorrow. What do you see as short-term fads? Look, I think we, we, we're in a golden era for short, snackable, Facebook shareable content, especially the text-based, you know, stuff we're all seeing. I don't think it will go away. But I think Facebook is a platform and all of us as media companies are kind of neglecting that people do like longer content. People like longer and at times content they're not clicking like and share on, right? Things that don't have as strong social indicators, which we're all addicted to. 
and say, and I think there's more room for longer, if not lean back, meatier content, but it doesn't perform to the metrics that we're all measuring ourselves by. So I think there's, whether it's a shift in one of the platforms or a shift in how we think, there'll be more of a market for what I'm calling meatier content than the quick, you know, snack, digest, you know, junk food content that is great. And then I'm not disparaging that at all. It's mostly, it's most of what we make and we love making it. And it's great to be able to get in someone's newsfeed, get them the news or get them something exciting or get them something emotional and have them share it and integrate it in the fabric of their communications with their friends. Awesome. That's what the job's all about for us, but not at the cost of every other type of content out there. You know, I'm still, I'm still bullish on television and, and Netflix and, and sort of the OTT model as distinct from television that's that's got a place and i think we're seeing this chasm between traditional and new media that does not need to exist at all all right they're they're not that different you know there's probably more similarities between netflix and youtube than there are between creating content for youtube and snapchat and yet there's that sort of crowbar separation between youtube and traditional and it seems like that is starting to shrink, right? That a lot of people from the traditional world are reaching out and understanding digital and vice versa, that they're realizing opportunities for the different mediums to come together, producing content that succeeds in multiple places. Yeah, we're just starting to see it. And we're starting to see the people cross-pollinate. You know, what I haven't seen yet and something that we hope to do is to create a truly new media traditional show, right? What Because there's a role, especially in, in unscripted, that television plays in our lives and there's a way we consume it and it's not as sexy as new media but what is it what does an experience look like where on every sunday night you sit back and watch a show that's on television live and then you interact with that and see content on instagram at the same time and then you go on youtube the next day to see content in that same universe you know i think there's a huge opportunity to the same way we treat all of our platforms as within the same universe to treat television and to an extension of that film within that same universe. And that is what's not happening yet. It's still treated like it's on this pedestal of, oh, that's different. That's not what we normally do. And you throw out this playbook that really works, which is how do you get someone talking about something? How do you make content that engages people? How do you get people to take actions after seeing content? All those things can apply to TV. And I think the moves we're making in the traditional space are all about closing that gap are all about saying, let's not kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater from what you guys know works about TV and what we know works about engaging, super shareable, buzzword, 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 social video content. Let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What are some of your favorite books? I think the best book I read recently was Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman. I think that's phenomenal book. Awesome. That's one I recommend uh, to everybody. A lot of history. I think history, I think, you know, I read like Ted Turner's biography, autobiography, and a couple other early media, and just trying to understand it's so easy to get wrapped up in the media of today and reading TechCrunch and all the stuff that's happening now. Like there's a playbook here. There's years and years of history of people innovating in media spaces and newspapers, radios, all the things we mentioned. I'm more interested in finding out about those because that will tell much more about the future than reading a bunch of pundits. Right. You know, and I think we all get obsessed reading them. And so I try and I try and limit my consumption and go back to some more history books. So those are those are the recent reads that are sticking out. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I got one piece of advice that's always stayed with me. 
it's terribly gendered and reflects the person and the possibilities <laughs> who gave it to me. Here we go. But I think there's a lesson for everybody in it, and it's something that helped sort of me shift my career. A guy once said to me, a manager of mine said, look, if you want to be the man, be the fucking man. And it was a time in my life where I think I wanted to accomplish a lot and hadn't quite put together how to make it happen. And I think what I've learned over time is that you have to make it happen. If you want it to happen, you have to make it happen. And again, it kind of goes back to that film thing, right? Is it's, things are going to get done. Cameras are rolling tomorrow at 9 a.m. I've never seen a shoot get canceled. We're going to figure it out. And I think in the same way, we're constantly looking at how are we going to figure this out? My career, in some respects, started in live TV as well. And so you're right. Like The show goes on, whether you want it to or not, at this time every single day. And it's uh, definitely a training ground. And you got to make it happen or you got to do your best with what you've got. The other thing that stuck out to me when I was asking you this advice question, how would I answer this? You and I both kind of plunged into this iteration of our entrepreneurial journeys around the same time. Two quotes that I put a desktop on my computer and would look at daily almost before this journey with Paladin. One was that nobody gets remembered in the middle, which encouraged me to think you have to be bold and do something different. And then there was another quote that I wrote, which is that ownership is everything. And that was incredibly motivating to say, I want to take ownership, not just in the sense of financial responsibility for a business, but also owning the vision, owning the work, owning the journey, owning the experience that our customers have, owning the experience that our employees feel, right, as, as being part of this mission. So I think it kind of dovetails nicely into like, if you're going to be the man, be the man. Like yeah, you have it's, to a, it's a much less crude version <laughs> of the advice I got. I don't know, it's with... Uh, with much not as progressive no i think and i think that's the other one in terms of quotes like i always go back to the jeff bezos quotes i think he's he's great and the one that i think is most applicable for us here uh and i'm going to butcher it just because i don't have it in front of me and i don't have it pinned up on my monitor even though i should is that we don't focus on the competition we focus on our customers and let the competition focus on us and i think it's so amazing to me in every organization i've been in how quick the customer or the user gets lost in a conversation Mm -hmm. and for us Everything has to be about that person. Even when we're pitching a brand on doing branded content, we're thinking about what that means for our customer and our user. And that is the person you live and die by. Not the VC, not the customer spending the money, not you know the competition who's going after the same person. It's what, is, what does that person want? And I think if there's one sort of guiding light for us, that's been it. And I think we built our brand and based on the relationship we have to our fans and every bit of Revenue from branded content, investment we've gotten has been because we've focused on that. And every time we stray from that, we've, we've paid. And so that's the one from a professional standpoint we keep coming back to. Um, if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? Besides this one? Yeah, you can't be doing Donut Media, but you wanted to do something totally fresh. What would you do? If I had no scruples, I would do you know the right-wing attention or now this news. I think that's pretty low-hanging fruit today. Maybe it already exists and my social feeds aren't sharing it, but uh, super opinionated videos on opinions that are maybe not the ones that are getting made in uh, Los Angeles. I think that's, there's something there. Not a great one. You know, beyond that, for something that creates more value, you know, I, I would look at, I would try and find other things that people would pay for. You know, I think what makes both Masterclass and Headspace, two of the more interesting media companies, is they're actually selling content that people are paying real money for. 
right? And that's not a small feat, as we all know, how many SVOD services can't get six people to subscribe to them. And yet here are these companies producing small amounts of content, very high-end, very expensive, you know, if you compare Headspace to what podcasts and stuff cost or downloads, if you compare Masterclass to just about anything, I think there's a lot of unexplored territory in content that people will pay for. And it doesn't look like what we expect it to look like. And Any verticals there you think are especially untapped? You know, just going off those two, it seems like things around self-improvement, things around lasting change are the ones that are really working, right? And so what are ways, you know, people are willing to pay not for content, they're paying to improve themselves. That's a huge shift. And then content just becomes the mechanism by which they're doing it. And I think the more people think about content that way as the means to do something else, the more success they'll have. You know, even for us, we're thinking about educating people and creating knowledge and creating conversation and creating emotional responses. And we're not thinking about creating content. Content is the means by which we achieve those other things. If they're a way to plug directly into people's brains and give them all the knowledge that we have about cars, we'd be interested and where can people find out more about you and more about Donut Media? Check out Donut Media on Facebook and YouTube. Those are the best places to find us. More about me, LinkedIn. I don't really, I'm not really a big self-promoter. James. Uh, nor am I, but LinkedIn is an interesting social network that we didn't really talk about, but kind of stands out from the rest of the crowd. I mean, it's not clearly a video platform, but I guess has the potential to be in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think there's certainly room for everyone to be video. And, and again, look, it's that sliding scale content, right? And I hate the word and I love the word at the same time because it encompasses everything. You know, is there a world where I go on LinkedIn and I am going to go to the James Creech augmented reality experience? You know, potentially, but it's what is, what are, these are just different mediums, different ways to tell stories and to communicate ideas. And the networks are ways of connecting people who have stories and ideas to tell. Uh, and so to take a very high level look at it, LinkedIn works because there's a certain set of questions I'm looking for, a certain set of people I'm looking to talk to. Right now it's driven by text. Not to say that that won't change in the future, but there's an ease to creating text that is pretty unmatched in today's world. This has been so much fun. As you know, I'm a big fan of what Donut Media is doing. I think you guys have really figured out how to create automotive content for the next generation of audiences. And so definitely encourage people to check it out. And uh, it was just fascinating to learn a little bit more about your background and get your take on the historical evolution of media. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Thank you.